Well, remain standing and take your Bibles out, and let me have you turn this morning to the book of Acts. To the book of Acts, while you're turning a quiz for you. Um, you know what today is. It's Mother's Day. We talked about that a little bit. Uh, but do you know what Thursday is? Well, it's Ascension Day. How many knew that? Without, before they looked at the name of the sermon and would know what we might be talking about. Okay, a couple. Great. Um, well, this is the day or the day that we celebrate. Thursday is the day that we celebrate Jesus ascending back into heaven at the conclusion of his earthly ministry, and we're going to talk about that today. We're going to read uh, from Acts chapter 1. We'll read the first 11 verses, and that will get us into this topic this morning. Follow along. Acts chapter 1, let us give heed once again to God's word to us. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We thank you for uh, the, the work of Christ, uh, of which we have read a, a small portion this morning. We pray that as we think on these things, that you would instruct us, that your spirit would illumine our hearts that we would understand these things and that as we go from this place, even this morning, that we would go rejoicing in our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do, Lord. And we pray for your blessing now upon this time in your word. And we ask it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So this passage that we read this morning here at the beginning of the book of Acts finds the disciples 40 days after the resurrection uh, back on the Mount of Olives, just outside to the, the east of Jerusalem with the little Kidron Valley there in the middle and the, the Garden of Gethsemane on the western slope, the, the village of Bethany on the eastern slope, uh, this 
mount known as the Mount of Olives, where Christ had taught them in the past, where he had delivered probably his second longest recorded teaching of his ministry. In fact, we call it the Olivet Discourse because it was given on the Mount of of Olives. All of this had taken place while Jesus was with his disciples and had been teaching them. You know, then had come the arrest of Jesus. Again, right there on that mountain, in that garden. Uh, Then the trials and the crucifixion, the killing of Jesus. And, And in the minds of the disciples and the women at that time, sort of the end of the dream. Remember on the road to Emmaus that the two disciples who walked with Jesus, not knowing it was Jesus, said we were hoping that he would have been the one, that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. But that dream's over, they thought. But then the glorious news of the resurrection, then the appearances to to the women and to the disciples, wonder of wonders, Christ was risen They were with their Lord again. How wonderful that must have felt after the the horrible feelings of the the crucifixion and the burial then to see Jesus risen from the dead and to be with him again. How wonderful they must have felt then when, when Jesus, we learn in other parts of the gospel, told them to meet him in this familiar place. What a time they likely had on that short walk from Jerusalem down through the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives there. Jesus had had been with them, it says here in uh, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. It says in verse 3 that he presented himself alive to them after... Uh, by, after his suffering, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. So even though he appeared to them, this wasn't the same as it had been. This wasn't the continual uh, times with Jesus that they had had. He appeared to them uh, during these 40 days. But now they are going out to the Mount of Olives to, to meet with Jesus. What would he say? What would he do? What would he teach to us? Uh, He had been teaching them, and now he's going to teach them hopefully some more. Uh, Maybe now he's going to restore the kingdom. You know, what we've kind of been waiting for all along. Maybe now he's going to do it. Let's make a note to ask him about that when we get there, and they do. And he does teach them, though he does not answer that question. He says in verses 7 and 8, he says, it's not for you to know that. That's none of your business right now. That's not what this is about. This is about you going out and being my witnesses. And then he says this, or then Luke records this in verse 9. It says, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And it's no wonder then that they did what verse 10 says that they did. While they were gazing into heaven, you know, they stood staring Mouths dropped open as they saw Jesus taken up into heaven. You know, standing there because of, because of the sight of it. You know, people don't do that. And because of the, the heartbreak of it, 
You know, now where is he going? Perhaps was in their minds. And because of the misunderstanding of it. You know, Jesus had told them that this was going to happen as well, that he was going to go back to the Father. He told them that he was going away. They might have been thinking, wouldn't it be better for Jesus to stay? He's been risen from the dead. He can pick up where he left off, teaching his word to people, you know, doing more miracles and, and mighty deeds among the people. Uh, why keep us from the presence of himself and everything that he has, has taught us? You know, him before who the demons trembled. But no, he left them. And as it were, left us in this event that we call the ascension. But literally, as we will see, literally, this is the best thing that could have happened. They didn't understand it. Maybe some of you don't understand it. We'll look at that this morning as we look at two things, the facts of the ascension and the fruit of the ascension. That's what we're going to look at. First, the facts of the ascension, the, the facts surrounding it. Of course, the word ascension itself means to go up. But this event is far more than just a relocation from one place to another. There's been this great cluster of events, redemptive events, that have taken place over the, the past few weeks here. There was a triumphal entry on Palm Sunday there was Jesus' death, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his burial on Good Friday. There was then that resurrection of which we've spoken of the Son of God from the, from the dead on the third day on, on Resurrection Sunday. And now here's this ascension. Christ leaving to go back to heaven. It's interesting that we, especially we, Evangelical Protestants, we by and large let this crowning event, which we'll see literally is that, uh, we let it go almost entirely unnoticed. There were only a couple that even knew that that was this Thursday that we celebrate Ascension Day. How many sermons have you heard about Ascension Day? But these are all Essential events in God's plan for salvation. Uh, and it's important to note that they all took place in time and space. Uh, in the context of real history, Christianity is not a, a mystical religion with just these tenets that we believe and some sort of uh, supernatural feeling that we get. Christianity happened in history. God stepped into creation, his creation, and used it that we might be made right with him. Christ entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday physically on a donkey that they had to go and get from someone and bring it and put their cloaks on it. And Jesus got on it and rode it into Jerusalem. And the people acclaimed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Echoes back to a physical king, King David. Christ then, who took on a human nature, partly so that he could die, did die. 
physically. The soldier pierced his side, and blood and water came out. He yielded up his spirit, and Mark 15, 37 said that he breathed his last. And then Christ, who had said that the third day he would rise from the dead, he did just that. Really. Physically. Not a spiritual resurrection. He physically rose from the dead. He walked, and he talked, and he ate with them. They, they touched him. They touched his hands. They touched his wounds and his feet and his side. He rose bodily, just as he had died bodily. And now, and it is critical that we understand that he ascended bodily, physically. Luke 24, at the end of his gospel, he says, While he was blessing them, he parted from them. And then Acts 9 says that he was lifted up while they were looking on. They were there. They saw this happen. And then notice the conclusion then, a hint at what's going on here. It says at the end of verse 9 that a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, clouds in the Bible are sometimes just clouds. They bring rain. They give shade. But when they're associated with God and with Christ and redemptive acts, there's a certain kind of cloud that the Bible speaks of. A cloud that is more than just a cloud, more than just water vapor. But it's a cloud that is actually more like smoke and which is accompanied by fire at times. A cloud which we refer to, this word is not in the, the Hebrew Old Testament, it's in the, the Aramaic translations, the Shekinah. If you were raised in a church like I was in a Pentecostal church, oh, we very often talked about the Shekinah glory. Well, this cloud was known as the Shekinah. A cloud, it was a manifestation of the presence of God, of the glory of God. In the giving of the law, the, the cloud was in a, or the mountain was in a cloud. There was a pillar of cloud that led the, the children of Israel through the desert. A cloud during the day and fire by night. When the tabernacle was dedicated in Exodus 40, Moses couldn't go into the, the tabernacle because the cloud descended upon it. The presence of God descended on it. It descended on the temple when the ark was brought into it in 1 Kings 18, or 1 Kings 8, rather. The priests couldn't minister then because God was there. They couldn't go in there while God was there. In the New Testament, we read about the transfiguration not too long ago, and we read that a bright cloud overshadowed him, and a voice came out of the cloud that was the voice of God himself. And when Jesus will return, we read that he will return on the clouds with great glory, with great power, in Matthew 24:30 and Revelation 1:7. And here, Christ is received back into heaven with the clouds, clouds of glory, the presence of God. And notice here that it is a passive verb. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, he was ascended, he ascended, he was taken up into heaven. But even more important than how he went was where he went and why he went. 
Because the ascension is not just, as I said, not just Christ moving from one location to another, from earth to heaven. But it is a, it is a coronation. Not a, just a heavenly homecoming, but a ceremony of sovereign power. Uh, Something similar uh, on an earthly scale was done in the Old Testament. Uh, We see it with David. Uh, We see it with Solomon. In fact, we saw it just a couple of weeks ago here in our time, here on earth, with the the coronation of King Charles III. You know, he had been king since, what was it, September 8th of last year. But now, on May 6th, he had his coronation. There he was formally crowned, given all of the trappings of his office. He was anointed, and with great pomp he sat down on the throne. Though on a a different level, those are good pictures of what we're talking about here and what happened in the, or as a result, of the ascension. Jesus goes away, he goes to a, a specific place for a specific purpose. And that special place that he goes to, the Bible tells us, is the right hand of the Father, the right hand of God, the right hand of power, Matthew says. Hebrews calls it the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews also calls it the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus ascends to the seat of the ruler of the universe. In the Apostles' Creed, don't we say it, that he ascended into heaven and what? Sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Back in Psalm 110, God the Father speaks to God the Son and and anticipates this and invites this to happen. He says in Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. This is that. That's what we're looking at. Jesus ascended not just to the clouds, not just to heaven, but he ascended to the supreme place of power and authority as the Lord of heaven and earth, the head of the church, the ruler of his people, the sovereign over the universe which he made. He sits now, as a result of this, as Ephesians 1.21 tells us, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one that is to come. What we are seeing here uh, that begins here and 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 is completed in heaven after Jesus is taken away and the cloud receives him, it's the same thing that was anticipated in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14 where we read concerning uh, the Son of Man who was presented to the Ancient of Days. We read, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what's going on in the ascension. A truly glorious event. So rich, so full of meaning, so full of glory 
And it, and it so lends itself to the honor and the praise and the worship of Christ. It's an incredibly important event. And it's unfortunate that we sort of let it get lost when we get through with, with Easter and the resurrection, that we sort of go on and we don't think about what came next. But this is what came next. This is, if you look at the book of Luke and the book of Acts, you remember that those are both written by Luke, uh, at th- this is the transitional event. Luke ends his gospel with this that we mentioned or read earlier, and he begins his second volume, the history of the early church, with this event. This is the crossover event. And as the disciples watch this spectacle, their minds may have gone back to 40, 41 days before to an event that we have recorded uh, the, the whole teaching is in John verses 14 through 16. But in chapter 16, Jesus said, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And certainly that is the case as the disciples watch Jesus go into heaven. But then Jesus says now now he could have said after that he could have said you know sorrow fills your heart but my work here is done you know i've conquered the devil i have i've destroyed his works i have done what i came to do and so it is time for me to leave he could have said i've been away from the father for so long that i desire to be back with him he could have said Well, I've been in this state of humiliation for 30-plus years with sinners. Uh, The humiliation is sort of done. I'm ready for the exaltation. He could have said that. He could have said the presence of my majesty is, is expected back in heaven. But he didn't say any of those things. Here's what he said in verse 7. After he said that sorrow has filled your heart, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. This is what's best for you. Well, how so? What are some of those benefits? What are some of those advantages? That's what we look at second as we look at the fruits of the ascension. What results from Christ's ascension to to the place of glory and authority and power? I'm going to give you seven Uh, This morning, the first and the most obvious one is what Jesus mentions here in John 16. As I continue reading there in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the first fruit of the ascension is that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is saying here that, that for the Spirit to be able to be poured out in this new way that he is going to be, this superior way that he was to be in, in accordance with the, the new covenant, that for him to come, Christ first had to ascend. John 14, 16 said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And that helper is, by the way, another helper, another of the same kind as Christ. One to take over where Christ had been and what Christ had done. Both are God. One then who now is called alongside to help the paraclete. And is identified in verse 17 as the Holy Spirit. And in sending the Spirit, the ministry of Christ to his children is continued. Christ's ministry continued through the Holy Spirit and expanded. Because though Christ, uh, with his human nature, could only be in one place at one time, the Holy Spirit would be even more efficient because as verse 18 there in John chapter 14 says, he dwells with you and will be in you. It's an interesting, or there is an interesting picture of that sort of thing way back in 2 Kings in the ministry of Elijah, in the crossover between Elijah and Elisha. We're talking about sort of the crossover between the ministry of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Elijah promised Elisha that that if Elisha was to see Jesus, or not see Jesus, to see Elijah taken up into heaven, then he, Elisha, Elijah told him, would have a double portion of the spirit that had been on Elijah given to him. And he did. In verses 11 and 12 of 2 Kings 2, we read that that Elisha saw the chariot of fire come and, and Elijah taken into heaven. And you know that in the Old Testament, from then on, that Elisha does twice as many miracles as Elijah did. And in the same way, here, the disciples see Jesus ascend into heaven, and guess what? In a few days, what happens? Pentecost. The the sending of the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit on the disciples who then go forward to be the witnesses of Christ, to teach uh, the Word of God, to write the Word of God, to, to do miracles, to do all of these things. So it's a wonderful picture back in the Old Testament of what is going on here. So the first fruit of the ascension is that the ascended Christ could and did send the Holy Spirit to minister to and to minister in the church. The second fruit of the ascension is that Christ attains and gives gifts to the church. He gives gifts to his church which he obtained as a result of his work and obtains in the ascension. Listen to this from Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Paul writing here says that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and he quotes from the Old Testament, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. 
When he ascended back to heaven, when Christ ascended back to heaven, he had, as, as the conquering king, had the spoils of his victory from what he had done here on the earth. He had all of the blessings of the covenant that he had fulfilled. All of the rights to, to not just rule over, but to equip his church. And he comes into heaven as the victor with all of these gifts. And what does he do? He turns around and he gives those gifts to his church, to us. He does it through the agency of the Holy Spirit, who he sends, who he gives, to enable the church, to empower the church to do the things that God calls us to do through the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And he gives us these these great and precious gifts in such a wonderful way by, by not just giving us the gifts but by giving us the giver of the gifts, giving us the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So as a benefit of Christ's ascension, we are given the, we sometimes refer to them as the spiritual gifts which Christ uses to build his church. But again, let's not take that that idea of spiritual and thinking that that means ethereal or or otherworldly. They are otherworldly only in their source. But many of them are very typical gifts. The gifts to be hospitable, the gift to pray, the gift to teach. Given by the Spirit, but they're called spiritual because they are given by the Spirit, not because they're non-physical kinds of gifts. And he gives gifts. And specifically in Ephesians 4, the gifts that he mentions there are the giving of gifted men to equip the church to use their gifts. He gives gifted men, first apostles and prophets, then uh, today evangelists and teachers and preachers. He gives those gifts, and it specifically says this in in Ephesians 4.12, he gives them for the equipping of the saints for works of service. He attains and gives gifts to his church by virtue of the ascension that we might serve him as he calls us to do. That's a second fruit of the ascension of Christ. A third one is that he becomes, this is a great one, he becomes our advocate in the presence of God, in the presence of the Father. This is Jesus continuing his work as our high priest. Beloved, we talked about this earlier in the service this morning, we are not yet without sin. So it is a great benefit that, as Hebrews says, that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. Romans 8.34 echoes that. He says, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, that's the ascension, and is also interceding for us. And finally, We read this verse this morning or mentioned it. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. And who is that advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. He comes to be, or he goes, to be our advocate. It is the will of the Father and the will of the Son that the sacrifice of Jesus will forever avail on our behalf. Not just when you get saved, but throughout eternity. Christ has secured redemption. He, Hebrew says he has obtained eternal redemption. 
He has made the sacrifice that secures it. And then in his ascension, he brought that sacrifice that he made, which is the sacrifice of himself. In his ascension, he brings that sacrifice into the presence of the Father. Into the presence of God. Into the true Holy of Holies. Does that sound familiar? In our Old Testament reading this morning, we read Leviticus 16. We read about the Day of Atonement. Once a year, it was done. Three sacrifices. There were two goats, one ram. The ram was offered as a sin offering for the priest himself. The the one we typically focus on, and it's beautiful in its symbolism, is the scapegoat. The the priest places his hands on the head of this goat and confesses the sin of the people, and then it's taken and driven out into the wilderness, never to be seen again, a beautiful picture of what Jesus does with our sins. But there's more to it, more to the Day of Atonement. This goat that that is the sin offering for the people of God... That that offering, that sacrifice is slaughtered in verse 15. But then the high priest takes that sacrifice. And what does he do with it? He takes it within the veil into the holy of holies and into the presence of God. And in the same way, Christ in his ascension enters into the true holy of holies, which is heaven, into the very presence of God to present his perfect, completed sacrifice. Not one that's going to have to be done again next year, but the one that for all time satisfies. And he takes that sacrifice into the presence of God the Father, behind the veil, as it were. And since he ever lives, Hebrews says, that sacrifice perpetually remains as a constant tribute to the fact that Jesus Christ has borne the sins of his people. Not having to be repeated. Made by the one-time sacrifice of the Son of God himself. Hebrews 9.24 says, For Christ has entered into the holy place, not made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God Catch these next three words, on our behalf. So when we sin, and we sin, and the accuser of the brethren would accuse us before God the Father and rightly bring up all of the things that we did. I mean, he's he's got the goods on us. and says, look at this, this Gene Crow guy. You know, he's a pastor, and look at what a horrid sinner he is. Look at what he did, this and this and this. God, how can you even allow him to be one of your children? Well, we have a a heavenly defense attorney, if you will. And even though Satan has all of this evidence against us because we sin, Jesus has better evidence that overcomes that, that wipes it out. And it's the evidence... Of himself. It is that sacrifice now in heaven before the presence of the Father. And that evidence is enough to clear all of his people, you, me, all of his people, of any and every charge that would be brought against them.
And so Paul so wonderfully says this, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yea, rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. An ever-present display of that one once-for-all sacrifice that was made that renders us right before God. Now, being our advocate also entails him pleading our, our case for continued grace before God. And Christ does that as well, even as he did when he was here. Remember uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed for his disciples and for those who would believe on him because of them. He prays for us as well. Just as he prayed for Peter. Christ is our high priest who continues to operate that way. Contrary to the high priests here who died and had to be replaced, he ever lives to make intercession for us, to lift us up before the Father. Ever lives to make intercession, to plead your case before God. How comforting is that child of God? And how wonderful that Christ himself does this. We don't need, we cannot, we must not, but we don't need to pray to anyone else, to saints, to pray for us. We could pray to God himself. In fact, Christ is our intercessor before the throne of God because he has been ascended into heaven. A fourth thing. This is another good one. Another fruit of the ascension is that as Jesus is gone, he is preparing a place for us. John 14 again, verses 1 through 3 this time. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told, or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is kind of an interesting promise because it tells us at the same time so little and yet so much. What is meant by my Father's house? Well, obviously that means heaven. What is meant by it having many rooms? As many as will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's room for as many as will come. But what is the nature of of this preparation? That, that Christ is performing. That we're not clear about. Uh, we're not told anything really about that. But here's the good part. We know that he's doing it. It's true that we have a place. Jesus just said it. And that he will return to take us to it. I submit to you this morning, that's all we need to know about it. Jesus himself said, if if it wasn't true, I would have told you. But praise the Lord, it is true. Part of what Christ is doing in heaven is preparing a place for you. Whatever that means. Regardless of the details, the focus of this verse and the great anticipation of every Christian who reads it is this. And whatever else it may be, whatever else it may mean, the important thing is that when he comes again, that he is coming so that 
where he is, we will be with him forever in heaven in his father's house. That's a fruit of this ascension that we're speaking of this morning. A fifth is that he establishes our presence there. Okay, make sure you catch this because it's not often mentioned and it's glorious. We know that Jesus Christ took a human nature in the incarnation. That's what the incarnation is. The second person of the Trinity taking a human nature. Hebrews 2.14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Hebrews 2.17, he, made, he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Uh, over in Philippians chapter 2, 7 uh, and following, we read that Jesus took the form of a bondservant. He was made in the, the likeness of men. And that's him who, or that is he who, beloved, is ascended back into heaven. The God-man, divine nature, human nature, one person. We talked about it last week. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Theanthropos. He is the one that we're talking about here ascending into heaven. And it's important to note, to take note, that he goes there not just as the second person of the Trinity, but he goes there as the incarnate second person of the Trinity, as glorified humanity. He is God and man, man and God, human nature, our human nature, perfected, glorified, now ascended into heaven. And Christ, by his ascension in our nature, enters into the heavenly sanctuary, representing by his own flesh, his people. And so, in the ascension, Jesus reinstates what was lost in the fall. He reinstates humanity in the presence of God. Heidelberg Catechism, question 49, says that the, one of the benefits of the ascension is that we have our flesh, our nature, in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take up to himself us, his members, his body. The body of Christ is even now through the Spirit connected with our head, Jesus Christ. We're the body. He's the head. And as he ascended into heaven, he has taken redeemed humanity into heaven. He has taken the head into heaven. And if he takes the head into heaven, we can be sure that the body will follow. To change the analogy a little, as the first fruits have been received into the storehouse, so will the full harvest of the people of God. As Hebrews 6.20 says, Jesus has gone into heaven as a forerunner for us. Christ ascended bodily, taken to heaven with his human nature. You and I are united to him. The head is in heaven, so it will take the body. That's how Paul can write in, in Ephesians that we are, even now, you and I, Christian, are seated with him, with Christ, in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus, because of this, because of the ascension. How is it that we can say that we even now reign with Christ? Through the ascension. A sixth, 
benefit, a sixth fruit, is that Christ, through his ascension, makes our tainted work acceptable to God. Because our service, no matter how good we think it is, no matter how hard we try to make it good, no matter how sanctified we are, is still tainted. Not always done out of true faith. Not always done to the honor of God. Not always done with the right motives. Not always in line with the scriptures. That's even our best service. We're kind of like, we're kind of like a reverse King Midas. Everything we touch, we ruin. But Christ, as our ascended priest, takes those acts of worship, the rotting, stinking, fly-ridden sacrifice that we offer up, and he presents it to God through his merits, pure. It's like the child who, for Mother's Day, decorates a cupcake for mom and then promptly drops it in the grass. And the father, in this case it's the son, picks it up, pulls out all of the things, fixes the decorations, and presents it perfect to mom and say, see what your child made for you? That's the picture. Our work is acceptable to God through and because of him. 1 Peter 2.5 says it this way, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the sixth, that he makes our tainted work acceptable to God. And one more, a seventh, is that his ascension guarantees his return. He ascended bodily. He ascended on the clouds of glory. And then we read this back in Acts chapter 1 in verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there with your mouths hanging open? As it were, he says, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. How did he go into heaven? On the clouds of glory, and he went bodily. How will he return? Bodily and on the clouds of glory, with a shout, the shout of the archangel, with the trump of God. Our prophet, our priest, our king has entered into glory as the scripture said. And again, he said, if I go away, I will come again. So as surely as he left, he's coming back. So those are seven, I would say, good things, aren't they? So it was necessary, it was profitable that Jesus went away, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Christian, as we look at these today, do not doubt that Christ is with you. Do not think that just because he is removed into heaven, because we don't see him now, because he's not with us now physically, that he is not with us, that he is not saving us, that he's not continuing to to cause us to be growing in our faith. Even more so, he is now through the Spirit. 
Because he is not merely with you as he was with the disciples, beloved, but he is, the Spirit is in you. And as the Spirit is in you, so is Christ. So our benefit from Christ's ascension is great, Christian. Let us uh, dwell on it. Let us pray that we derive all of those benefits for which God accomplished it in Christ. And let us never, ever, Forget it. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for for Christ once again. And we thank you for the fact that he not only died and was raised, but he also ascended, taking our flesh into heaven, where he is even now at your right hand, the place of power and the place of authority. He is there on our behalf and that he has given us gifts. He has given us the spirit. He continues to intercede for us even as he continues to to be a continual reminder of the great and redemptive sacrifice of himself that he made. We pray that we would think on these things, Lord. Bring them to our mind that we might think on them and rejoice in, in this aspect of our Lord's work. For us. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.